We all know the saying that democracy is the worst form of government there's ever been, except for all of the others. And yes, it's true. Democracy can get messy. Voters can make mistakes and politicians can figure out ways to play those voters. But the theory goes that democracy always gets to correct itself. The bums get thrown out. The wisdom of the people gets reasserted. But what if the theory fails? Could the people make a choice that is not only bad, but that so damages democracy in the process that it cannot make the necessary correction? And rule by the people gets lost. Well, we are in a time when that idea is being kicked around by a lot of smart people, some of them very worried, some of them not so much, because they do remain bullish on democracy. That all has quite the makings of a debate, so let's have it. Yes or no to this statement, Western democracy is threatening suicide. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S., and I stand between two teams of two experts in the topic who will argue for and against the motion. As always, our debate will go in three rounds, and then our live audience here at the Kaufman Music Center in New York City will choose the winner. And as always, if all goes well, civil discourse will also win. What I'd like to ask you to do now is to vote as you come off the street to tell us where you stand on this motion. Western democracy is threatening suicide. There are instructions on how to get to the voting site on the back of our program, but it's basically to go to that address on a browser, and you will be sent prompts to vote yes, no, or undecided. We're going to move forward, but you have a few minutes to complete that process. And I will... um, I see a lot of people going to their phones, so I'm going to wait about 15 seconds before moving forward to make... For those of you who can get through it and get eye contact reestablished with me. But you can take as long as you need to get that done. Let's move forward. Our motion is this. Western democracy is threatening suicide. We have two teams arguing for and against. Let's first meet the team arguing for the motion. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Bernard-Henri Lévy. Bernard, it is great to have you back for, I believe, your second uh, IQ2 U.S. debate. You are a philosopher. You are author of the book The Genius of Judaism, which was published only in January. Uh, And to launch the the conversation, just very briefly from each of you, we're going to put this question to all of you. In one sentence, tell us what you consider to be democracy's defining virtue. One sentence. Yes. To believe in words, in values, in truth not in motions, which is the opposite of what we will do tonight. What a perfect sentence. We are going to believe in Ah, motions. That's two sentences. (laughs) Thanks very much, Bernard Henri Levy. And can you tell us who your partner is, please? I'm sorry? And your partner, can you introduce your partner or I will? Yasha Monk. I introduce him, of course. Uh, (laughs) The floor is his. Ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your partner, Yasha Monk. Yasha, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You are a senior fellow at New America. You're a lecturer at Harvard University. You became an American citizen this year. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Um, Your forthcoming book is titled The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. You are also host of the podcast The Good Fight. 
The question to you is the same one I put to your partner. What do you see as democracy's defining value? Virtue. Virtue. Value. Virtue. I think it's the ability of people in democracy to see each other, even if they have deep disagreements, even if they really think the person on the other side is deeply wrong, to see each other as adversaries rather than enemies and to resolve their differences in a peaceful manner. Thank you very much. Great answer as well. The team arguing, ladies and gentlemen, one more time for the motion, which is Western democracy is threatening suicide. And we have two great debaters arguing against the motion. First, I want to welcome, ladies and gentlemen, Clive Crook. Clive, also a return to Intelligence Squared for you. You are a columnist for Bloomberg View, where you write about economics and finance and politics. And on our quest in democracy's defining virtue, you say? I think I'd say one word, and that's consent. I think you mentioned it in your opening Mm -hmm. remark. Consent. Okay, you took one sentence and turned it into one word. Well done. (laughs) That's the kind of pithiness we're looking for tonight. And can you tell us, please, who your partner is? Corey. <laughs> next time, next time we will rehearse this over and over again. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Corey Shackey. Corey, uh, welcome back also to you to Intelligence Squared US. You're a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. You are the editor with Jim Mattis of the book Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. Corey, what is democracy's defining virtue? So I am going to try and meet Clive's standard and use a single word. And for me, it is accountability. Excellent. The team arguing against the motion. You've heard their two words. Let's move on to round one. Round one are opening statements by each debater in turn. They will be six minutes each. And Yasha, you can make your way to the speaking space over there. Debating for the motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide. Our opener is Yasha Munk, a senior fellow at New America and lecturer at Harvard University. Ladies and gentlemen, Yasha Munk. Thank you. So when I grew up, my uh, parents and my aunts and uncles, my grandparents would tell these jokes. They grew up in socialist Poland and they were jokes that I didn't always quite understand. Um, but I've been thinking back to one of them a lot over the last year. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It plays in a small town in the Soviet Union, and a guy is coming off work late at night. He's walking home, and he sees some other guy completely drunk on the side of the road, throwing up into the gutter. And as, he, as soon as he sees the guy, he puts in a big smile, he walks over, he puts a hand on his shoulder, and he says... I completely agree with your political analysis, comrade. (laughs) Uh, I think you understand why I told that joke when I look at what's going on in our politics here in the United States, but also in Europe. It's easy to feel disgusted, and I feel disgusted. I feel disgusted when our president denigrates the people who are in need of help at the moment in Puerto Rico. I feel disgusted when our president calls neo-Nazis some very fine people implicitly in response to Charlottesville. But today I don't want to talk about disgust and I don't want to talk about emotion. I want to make a rational, careful, calibrated case for why, unfortunately, I do believe that democracy is threatening suicide at the moment. Now, what would it take for us to believe that if we put our disgust aside, why should we think 
the democracy is threatening to suicide. Well, I think we have to show two sides, two things to be true on this side of the debate. The first is that people really are quite fed up with democracy, that they're falling out of love with democracy, that they've had enough of it in many ways. Now, thankfully, that's something that my academic research speaks to directly. I've shown in the last years that the number of people who say it's important to live in a democracy has gone down a lot. When you ask Americans born in the 1930s and 1940s how important it is to them to live in a democracy, over two-thirds say it's essential to them. When you ask millennials, like me, born since 1980, how important it is to them to live in a democracy, less than one-third say the same thing. Even when you ask about straightforward or for a town alternatives to democracy, the number of people who say that they're in favor of that has gone up. 20 years ago, one in 16 Americans said that they were in favor of army rule. Now it's one in six Americans. Six percent of young and affluent Americans used to think that army rule was a good thing. Now it's 35 percent, an 86-fold increase. And this is not just in the United States. In France, in the United Kingdom, about one in four people used to say that they want a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament and elections. Now one in two do. These are shocking numbers. And they're not just abstract questions that people are asked on surveys. You can see some of the results in actual voting behavior. You see the election of Donald Trump in the United States, a man who promised even before the election to keep voters in suspense about whether he would accept the outcome of the election, who threatened to jail his main political, not adversary, but opponent in his mind. You see the rise of parties like the Alternative for Germany, that is now the third strongest as of elections 10 days ago. A party, many of whose adherents and leaders want, I quote, a 180-degree turn in our understanding of World War II. So this is not abstract. It's actually resulting in real action. So that's the first thing you ought to believe, that a scary number of people is fed up with democracy, is becoming more open to alternatives, is threatening to emulate democracy. But there's a second part that we have to convince you of as well, which is that these movements are actually dangerous. That people like Donald Trump, that people like Marine Le Pen, that people like Frau Petri in Germany can do real damage to democracy. Now, there's some great examples of that happening in the world. And Bernard Henri is going to tell you more about some of those cases. We're going to talk about Poland and Hungary and Venezuela and Russia and Turkey and all of those other places where populists or for Italian populists have been able to undermine independent institutions, to take a lot of power and control. But for the last minute and a half that I have in my opening statement, I want to tell you about the logic of populism, why it is that these populists end up being dangerous to democracy. And it's for a very simple reason. It's because they think politics is simple. It's because they think that all of our problems are the fault of a elite that is corrupt or self-serving or cares more about minorities and foreigners than they do about the real people. And it's this mindset that makes them promise voters everything. Get into power and say, I'm going to solve everything. And of course, once they get into power, they start saying, who knew that healthcare could be so complicated? (laughs) Who knew that keeping the peace with North Korea is not so easy? And so what do they do? They start to blame. They start to blame independent institutions. They start to attack judges. They start to attack the press. They start to attack minorities. And once somebody who's in power does that, 
democracy is in real danger. So those are the two things we want to convince you of today. A lot of people are fed up with democracy. As a result, they're starting to vote for those authoritarian populists, and those authoritarian populists are really dangerous. Now, I'm not saying that democracy is doomed. I'm not saying that there's not things we can do in response to that. It is threatening suicide, but it doesn't mean that it's committed suicide yet, and we can stop it. It's our duty to try and stop it. But to do that, we have to recognize how serious this moment is and start to do whatever we can to save our political system. Thank you. Thank you, Yasha Monk. And that motion again, Western democracy is threatening suicide. First up to speak against the motion, Clive Crook, columnist for Bloomberg View. He'll be arguing against the motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide. Ladies and gentlemen, Clive Crook. Well, that's right. I'm going to argue the Western democracy isn't threatening to commit suicide. Attachment to the democratic principle of government by consent under rule of law is as strong as ever across America and elsewhere in the West. That's what I want to argue. I do want to stress one thing at the outset. Much of what we've seen in Western politics lately and much of what we'll be discussing tonight is disturbing. We've seen a rising tide of populism. And this surge has led to some very bad choices of leaders and of policies. Democracy and the rule of law don't save us from bad choices. They don't always protect us from leaders that let us down or from policies that will make us worse off. They don't prevent mistakes. But they do leave power in our hands so that we can correct those mistakes. That's the core of the case for democracy – And contrary to what we've heard so far, I see no sign in the West that support for this fundamental idea is wavering. Now, my partner, Corey, is going to have more to say about populism more broadly. But Donald Trump and Brexit are seen as leading products of democracy's self-destructive instincts. So I want to start there. Trump is a loud mouth, a narcissist, and a bully... He knows next to nothing about public policy, and he's fine with that. He may well have authoritarian instincts, and his appeal is in part the appeal of a demagogue. You could say he's testing the American constitutional system. But you'd also have to say that the American constitutional system is passing this test. Already he's been checked at every turn by Congress. Again and again he's been checked by the courts. After he fired James Comey as head of the FBI, Trump's own Justice Department appointed a special counsel of renowned driving integrity to take the Russia investigation forward. Perhaps Trump will be foolish enough to try to remove Mueller from that post. If he does, more of his supporters will desert and the odds on his impeachment will shorten dramatically. In other words, our constitutional protections are working. Now, Trump, this leader with authoritarian appetites, let's call them, did get elected, and he still has a lot of support. So how can I argue that backing for democracy remains strong? Because support for Trump is mainly an act of protest, not against the principles of democratic governance, but against the performance of an entrenched and incompetent political class, 
Trump supporters consider themselves loyal to the Constitution. They made a bad choice, but it's a serious misunderstanding to call a protest vote against the dysfunction of Washington, D.C., anti-democratic. I see Brexit in much the same way. Support for taking the UK out of the European Union was a protest vote against the leakage of political power to an emerging new order lacking clear lines of democratic accountability. This steady erosion of sovereignty has been exaggerated by Brexit's advocates. That's true. But it's real nonetheless. People feel a loss of control and they want it back. Now again, that decision was unwise in my view. Brexit is going to cost the UK dearly. It was a reckless choice. But it was not a vote against democracy. It was a reckless vote in favour of democracy. At this point, supporters of this motion might be inclined to pivot. There's no authoritarian tendency in Brexit. The vote to quit was passed by a majority in a legally sanctioned referendum. So the charge can't be that Brexit is anti-democratic. Instead, it's deemed illiberal. And the evidence for that, Brexit supporters, are disproportionately in favour of tighter restrictions on immigration. And with this, of course, the link to Trump is re-established. It turns out, or so goes the argument, the real problem is bigotry and backwardness. Populism isn't anti-democratic after all. It's just the wrong kind of democratic. But this, I think, is another misunderstanding. The foundations of Western liberalism aren't threatened by an argument over immigration policy any more than they're threatened by any of the other disputes that democracies exist to mediate. I'm an immigrant myself with a vested interest in permissive immigration policies, but I recognize that the issue isn't open and shut. High immigration can put some host country workers at a disadvantage, and abrupt surges of immigration do put systems and communities under stress. Liberal democracies should be able to have this debate without collapsing into moral panic about our declining commitment to democratic values. In times of great stress, and the past decade was that and then some, voters can lose trust in their leaders and put the wrong people in charge. They might even tell pollsters that democracy is no longer working for them. But here's the key thing. Not for one second does that mean they want control taken out of their hands or the government to put itself above the law. Western democracy isn't dying. I ask you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Clive Cook. And that motion again, Western democracy is threatening suicide. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan. We have four debaters, two teams of two, fighting it out over this motion. Western democracy is threatening suicide. You've heard the first two opening statements, and now on to the third. But I'm going to break for just a second. We changed our staging a little bit tonight, and I wanted to tell the next two speakers that when you come over here, you'll see a square on the floor and we wanted you to stand in the square, so not to position yourself behind our mini lectern. This, this is a support pillar. It's one of these, as opposed to one of these. Okay? And the reason is it works with our framing. Okay, thank you. 
Now to speak for the motion, Western Democracy is Threatening Suicide, let's welcome to the stage philosopher and author of The Genius of Judaism, Bernard Henri Lévy. Ladies and gentlemen, Bernard Henri Lévy. Nice. Okay. I fear to disagree uh, strongly with Clive. I'm going to tell you why Brexit... Uh, populism in uh, continental Europe and Trump are against democracy. Democracy is not only the fact of voting. Democracy is not only the law of majority. To be in democracy means, of course, that there is a vote, but it means also a certain style of behavior, of consent, as you said, of uh, values, a certain form of public debate, a certain way of believing in truth, exactly the opposite of what do all those you mentioned. During the Brexit campaign, you had this incredible image of some debaters, Neil Farage, pretending, uh, uh, um, making some points, and just after the vote, in a very famous TV uh, program, saying, okay, I lied. I did not mean it. I know it is true that uh, uh, it will uh, uh, all the story with the, the health system and the, co- and the European Commission. You have in France, in France, Marine Le Pen and all the populists. They don't give a shit about truth, about values, about creed. They don't even believe in fascist creed. They don't believe in anything. They are pure cynical, which is the opposite of democracy. And Donald Trump did even better. He decreed, he decided that truth does not exist any longer, that truth is exactly what fits him, and that there is a post-truth, an alternative truth, alternative facts, which are what is convenient for him. So this means that you cannot say that this rise of populist movement don't prove that there is a real threat on democracy. Now there is other science. For example, if we try to take a point of view a little broader, what happens in Greece today? Greece, as you know, and as my friend and partner, Yasha, knows better than me, I was such a bad partner, I'm sorry. Greece (laughs) is the birthplace of democracy. And and democracy in Greece is dying now, since a few years. Number two, second sign. In the last three, four years, I don't go decades, in the last years, each time we saw peoples trying to embrace democracy, trying to join the club of democracy, the democracies said, no, thank you. Remain where you are. This is what happened with the Syrian Democrats when some people in Syria decided to oppose both the criminals of Bashar al-Assad regime and ISIS, the Democrats, they were said by the United States of America, by France, by Europe, no, thank you. Remember the red line which was crossed and uh, with no consequences. Second example, Ukraine. You had in Ukraine very recently a whole people with a, a big culture saying, We are European. We want to join the club of democracies. We want, we embrace your values. We said, you belong to the geostrategic space 
of Russia. And the last example, I'm just coming from there a few hours ago, Kurdistan. You have a valiant people who fights for the values of democracy, and we are abandoning these people in a shameful way. So this is the sign of democracies who, are, who no longer believe enough in themselves to be able to hear this appeal and this call. When you look at the map of the world, to last remark, who is on the rise today? Who is uh, in progress? Some forces, some empires, which we thought dead in the last years. There was a whole theory going from uh, uh, Toynbee and, uh, uh, and Spengler to uh, Hobbesbaum saying that they were on decline, they were dying. They are on the rise again. The Ottoman Empire, the Russian Empire, the Chinese Empire. In a way, the dream of an Arab Empire embodied by Al-Qaeda yesterday and by Daesh, uh, by ISIS today. And you have, last but not least, Iran, which is becoming again, which is renoding, reconnecting itself with the dream of a Persian empire in all its areas. So this rise, this uh, revival of the old non-democratic empires, which we all believe to be in the grave and who appear to be more vibrant than ever, this is another sign that democracy is not going well, that democracy is tired of itself, that the wind of history is, alas, no longer blowing in the sense of democracy, but in the sense of the enemies of democracy. And believe me, when I say that, I'm not preaching for a motion. I'm saying what I feel, what I believe in the depth of my heart. That's why I would like you to vote for Yasha. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bernard And this motion is Western democracy is threatening suicide. And our final opening statement comes from the side arguing against. Please welcome to the lectern Corey Shackey, fellow research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Ladies and gentlemen, Corey Shackey. So I could tell the story of change in the international order very differently than Bernard Henri did. Uh, because in the 1970s, people said Latin Americans don't care about democracy, right? Uh, they're too poor. Their basic needs are what they're focused on. And now look at Latin America, right? It's a continent of vibrant democracies. The, the Brazilians are refusing to stand for corruption in their government, which had been common for uh, for the entirety of Brazilian history. In the 1980s, people said, Africans don't care about democracy, right? And the African continent, while having suffered many setbacks, 
Because in fact, the transition to democracy, the building of a social fabric of civil society and free media and civic tolerance and institutions of government that buffer against bad choices in the near term and the consensual relations of how you are going to pass laws, enforce laws, these are difficult conversations for every society. And our society in the West is not excelling at them at the moment. I grant uh, the other team that. Uh, but when we say we hold these truths to be self-evident, right, that people have rights and they loan them to governments in limited ways, we mean it when we're talking about ourselves. And yet very often we don't actually really believe in the universality of what we're saying, right? That Latin Americans want to be able to control their government, that Africans want to be able to control their government. Uh, in the 19, let's see, I went 70s, 80s, in the 1990s, there was the Asian values debate, right? That the people of uh, the countries of Asia didn't care about democracy, they were worried about getting rich. Turns out that's not true either, right? People are agitating for the ability to control their government. Uh, in the 2000s, there was the question, oh, I left out Yugoslavia, right? That the Bal people of the Balkans didn't care about representative government. They didn't care about the ability to control their government. And now the discussion is about the Middle East. And yet, what have we seen in the Middle East? Not only, as you suggest, um, the, the people of the Kurdish regions of Iran, Syria, Turkey, and Iraq um, yearning for a government that feels representative to them, but the people of Iraq as well. The people of Iran, the 2009 Iranian parliamentary elections in which they believed the government had stolen from the people the outcome. And that had to be put down by force. The peaceful protest marches, the peaceful protest marches you saw in Syria before the government began cracking down on them. People yearn for what we have the luxury of taking for granted. My response to the fact that, you know, these kids these days don't care about freedom and democracy and they'd just be just as happy to live in an autocracy. Yeah, my nephews have the luxury of not knowing anything about World War II. And that's pretty wonderful that they have grown up in freedom so expansive that they can talk nonsense about what kind of government they would like to live under. But nobody's choosing to live under authoritarian governments. Right? Um, people aren't, Americans aren't emigrating to China because, by God, what we would like is an efficient government that would have high speed trains that work on time. We don't do that because democracy is messy and slow, and we're almost always dissatisfied with the process, and we're almost always dissatisfied with the outcomes. But that's the point. We get to change the outcomes. That's a universal yearning, that every time people get the opportunity to choose it, they choose it. That is the expansive success of democracy in the West. That is, it is not just our democracy that is the measure of the success of democracy, but 
people in Argentina, people in Brazil, people in China who actually want a government that is responsive to clean air and safe baby milk demands. That's what will bring the Chinese government down, right? Average people. All of us can identify ridiculous excesses in our politics. In fact, we have elected one president in our country. But the institutions are holding Civic society is holding. The day President Trump issued his travel ban, the ACLU got 350,000 new members and raised $24 million. Right? There, there are natural antibodies in democratic societies that get activated when our rights or our practices begin to be undercut. And the reason I believe that you should vote for our side of the argument is that it's a vote in the ability of rejuvenation in democratic societies. We're not good at having it right. We're good at getting it right, right? By bits and pieces, by fits and starts, by doing it badly and then doing it a little bit better. That's the success of democracy in our societies. Thank you, Corey Shaki. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is Western democracy is threatening suicide. One note I want to share with you as we're talking about voting. We asked you to vote when you came in off the streets on your opinion on this motion. Uh, at the end of the debate, after you've heard all of the arguments right after round three, we'll have you vote a second time. And we give victory to the team whose numbers have changed the most upward in percentage point terms between the first and the second vote. So it's the difference between the first vote and the second votes. Now we move on to round two, and round two is where the debaters address one another directly, and they take questions from me and from you, uh, members of our live audience here in New York City. The motion is this. Western democracy is threatening suicide. The team arguing in support of the motion, Bernard-Henri Levy and Yasha Munk, have argued that Americans are falling out of love with democracy. They're saying they see the same thing in some parts of Western Europe, that this is not an abstraction, that it is happening now. It's happening particularly with the younger generation in this country, uh, answering surveys in which they indicate a willingness, much greater willingness than their, uh, uh, than their uh, what's the word I'm looking for, than their parents, I guess, um, for military rule, less uh, support for democracy and belief in it as a good system of government. They're saying, in fact, that the people who are getting elected now actually can cause real harm because democracy is not just about the vote. It's about a culture and a set of attitudes and the behavior, and politicians are dishonoring the traditions of democracy, which has impact. We are hearing that now uh, in this country with the president's attack on judges, on the press, that this harm is for real and that this is also happening around the world, and also that the lack of support from the democracies for places where nascent democracies are struggling to stand up suggests that the democracies have lost faith in themselves. The team arguing against the motion, Corey Shockey and Clive Crook, they say, yes, populism is real. They say it is rising. They say bad leaders are being chosen. But they argue fiercely that the mistakes that are made can be corrected and that support for the ability to correct mistakes is not being eroded, that all over the world people are fighting for what we have, which is the choice to choose our leaders to throw the bums out and that that has not changed. They also point out that in the case, specific case of Donald Trump, that moves he's made, which may seem authoritarian, have been checked again and again and again 
by the courts and by the media, uh, and they, they're, they're saying that basically the system is working, democracy is resilient, and that the fact that we get to change the outcomes suggests that the natural antibodies against authoritarianism are alive and well and working in this country. There's a lot to get into there. What I want to do is I, I'm very interested in this notion about the against side's confidence in the ability of the system to correct for the kinds of problems the foresight is saying are taking place. So I want to take this to, first to Yasha Monk. Your opponents are saying a lot of what you're saying is true. They're not saying so what. They're not saying it's inconsequential. But they're saying the system is built to fix it and it's proving that it's working. What's your response to that? I think that was really, you cut to the chase of the core of the argument, right? Um, they both said, look, a protest vote doesn't necessarily mean that it's anti-democratic. If you vote for Brexit, you're fed up with the European Union. It doesn't mean that you dislike democracy. They said, look, perhaps young people have a liberty to say, I don't like uh, democracy, I'm in favor of army rule. They wouldn't actually enjoy living under army rule. I grant both of those points. Both of those points are true. But that's not reassuring. Because democracy is a very brittle set of institutions. And once you have an authoritarian populist in power who is actually trying to undermine independent institutions in every way they can, the fact that people say, oh, you know what, whoops, we made a mistake, isn't going to help. When you look at the current Polish government, they were elected mainly on a promise to abolish a $10 charge when you go to the doctor. But they also were populists, and now they have stacked the Supreme Court of Poland with their own supporters. They have turned state TV into a complete propaganda machine. They have undermined the right of the opposition to protest their policies. Lots of Poles are now saying, you know what, perhaps we made a mistake. We shouldn't have said, it's going to be fine. But once you have that kind of government in power, it's really difficult to fight back against it. Let's let uh, Clive Crook respond to that. I think Corey wants to. Corey would like to. Corey Shepi. So so I agree with your assessment of the tragedy of contemporary politics in Poland. But I'm not sure that example proves the general case. I can think of two, so, so two quick reactions. The first is that you guys haven't actually answered the question of why is this happening now. And Clive's answer is that we're in a time of tumult. The world's changing dramatically because of technology and globalization, and that's putting pressure on the system. But the system is functioning as it's designed to. We think it's a lot less brittle than you think it is. And I would just use from the American case, we have two precedential examples. There uh, are similar times in the 1820s and the 1880s where you have rapid technological change that roils American politics and throws these populist political leaders up. Andrew Jackson, for example, much greater threat to the institutions and practices of democracy in America than Donald Trump ever was. But the great thing about democracies is that you turn the key in the lock, his adversaries found ways to create... Um, counter-arguments, and the same thing happens in the 1880s. You get populists coming forward, and then you get the problems that were driving people to populism addressed by democratic means. Let, let me, and we're in the midst of that process. Let me bring a little of your point to Bernard Armand Levy and put it in the context of Brexit. Your, your opponents have called Brexit a, maybe even a rational protest vote, uh, given you know, the, the, the European Union bureaucracy is annoying, 
Um, it is slow, and therefore it's, it's a rational choice as opposed to something to be frightened of that the British public would make that choice as a protest vote, which was not a vote in any way to say we want less democracy. And I think in the minds of the voters, it might have been a sense of more control. So put, t- take us through the Brexit vote and how that fits into your argument. The Brexit vote, uh, of course it is a, a protest vote, but all populist votes, all extreme right votes in history, and even, I'm sorry, all fascist votes in the past, it is not comparable, were votes of protest. They were always, in Germany, not comparable, in Italy, not, it was votes of protest. Protest is not an argument. You have a way to protest in a democratic uh, sense, and you have a way to protest which takes you out of the democratic uh, circle. You say that, thanks God, America is a great country, of course, with strong institutions, of course, with institutions which resist the coup de force. That is true. But the real event, which was inconceivable a few years ago, was that a man could come to the highest supreme uh, uh, duty office by non-believing in truth, by non-believing in press, by not knowing how the world is going on, by threatening a whole country to be destroyed from the surface, from the, 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 from the earth, because, uh, for good reasons, but you, you don't confront a dictatorship, North Korea, by saying that you are going to erase the whole people. All that is witness, is a sign of a real decay and the absence of protest. Uh, about that uh, is a proof that we are facing a real fatigue of the democratic values in our countries. Clive Crook to respond. Can I respond to that? I I do agree with you that it isn't enough to say it's a protest vote. Uh, And I didn't say it was just a protest vote. I said the Brexit Brexit vote was a protest against um, political reforms that have not been put before Europe's people that have not been consented to. The, the fabric of democracy in Europe is changing in a very top-down, driven way, and many people, not just in Britain, but, but in Britain especially, um, uh, many people find that very disconcerting. They feel that they've been cheated, and they're protesting against that. And my point is that that is, in fact, a legitimate protest, And that is a protest in support of democratic values. And although I, uh, you know, I I object to Trump as strenuously as anybody in this room, but there is an element of legitimate protest in the support that carried him to the White House. What is so? Yes, Trump's a protest, but what is the protest about? The protest is about a political system that is perceived to be letting people down, and that is not a false assessment. I mean, uh, for year, year after year, Don't opinion you think polls... Don't Donald Trump is letting people down too? Year, year after year, people in, in the U.S. tell opinion pollsters what, how much confidence they have in Congress. Year after year, that, that number is in single figures. What changes? People are right to feel that Washington is unresponsive, that Washington isn't listening, that these incumbents are corrupt... And you can't get 
than to listen. Let me bring and in, that's a legitimate so, protest. Let me bring in, in, let me bring in Yasha, uh, Yasha, uh, Yasha uh, first. Wait, wait, everybody, wait a second. Wait, one more, Yasha, one more. So I'm a little confused here, right? Because you seem to think that as long as you prove that the reason why people voted for Donald Trump or the reason why people voted for Brexit has something to do with protests, has something to do with <coughs> legitimate grievances, then it means that Western democracy isn't threatening suicide. That seems can to you me... Can you tell us, did he nail your, the, the sense oh. of your argument there? No, but, I, but just in one sentence, if you can, before he well, proceeds. Well, I'll give you one word. No, he does not nail uh, the essence of my argument. I'm trying to shed some light on where the support is coming from. And I'm trying to say there are legitimate components. Okay. Yeah. That's Go ahead. all. But, Go ahead, Yasha. My point is that that's, the not, that's not the question. I grant that there's legitimate reasons to be pissed off. Well, you off. denied it before, it, Yasha. No, no, I didn't. There are very legitimate reasons to be pissed off of the way things are going. But that's one of the reasons to think that democracy is threatening suicide and that it's not so easy to solve it. Why are people voting for populists? Why did people vote for Donald Trump? Well, for one, because the living standard of average Americans has stagnated. From 1945 to 1960, it doubled. From 1960 to 1985, it doubled again. Since 1985, it's been flat. People are pissed off about that. For another, because it's complicated turning a, a, a country with a strict racial hierarchy into an equal multi-ethnic democracy. We're still struggling with that. There are some people who are against it. Now, what I want to say is this. These are deep problems, and they are driving real anger. And unless we solve them, they're going to continue driving those protest votes. They're going to continue driving that anger. This is precisely so, our point. No, because, because, because it's difficult what, to solve those the, problems. And if we won't, the, then the, democracy the is going to be in Washington, the pro- Look, for heaven's sake, the problem in Washington is not the technical difficulty of these issues. It is political paralysis. Sure. If you could, I'm sure we could I all agree. write down a list of, of sensible economic reforms, tax reforms that would make sense. So how would you solve uh, Washington can't, Well, Wait, Clive, shocking I, I, the system. We helps. haven't heard from Corey in about two and a half, three minutes, so I want to hear from you. <laughs> and then I want to hear from Bernard. I agree with Clive that our fellows on the other side of the argument are underestimating the capacity of democratic institutions and democratic people to grope their way to solutions of these problems. The question I would ask to, to, that I think may bring a sharp point the between... the operative term for the, commander-in-chief. Sorry, the guys. question <laughs> I would ask um, that I think puts a sharp edge on it is why would it be that democratic societies of long standing like France and the United States have always had the capacity to solve these enormously hard problems um, and suddenly fail now? Okay, Bernard, that's an interesting question. Why, why is it different now? I think you are under, underestimating the capacity of any regime, including, including democracy, to die. Regimes can die. This is what all the ancient authors, inventors of the idea of democracy proved. The Greek Polybes said exactly, he designed the mechanism according to which a regime could corrupt, decline, and die. So it is not because it did not happen in 1880 or in 1920 that it cannot happen today. Democracy can die. Number one. Do you believe in the antibodies? Why, why, it, okay, happen, why, why it happens today? Why it happens today? 
because there is beyond the political parties, beyond the case of Trump or whoever, there is a climate, a, a, a sort of air which is not favorable to democracy. For example, the internet, the, uh, the social networks. Uh, this way, it, it started with a good, with a democratic belief. Anyone has a right to express its op- his opinion. This is democracy. But it ended in an undemocratic belief. Each opinion equals the other one. Every opinion expressed has the same value. This is a single example, very simple, where you see how a real democratic uh, anger, pretension, uh, 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 um, desire turns into its contrary. Today, you are back to the worst regime what, which the Greeks called the, la sophistique, where every opinion equals the other. And this leads to Donald Trump in Charlotte, about Charlottesville saying that there is two sides. We are living in a world where we believe that in every single circumstance there is two sides, the racist and the anti-racist, the violent and the pacifist, there are just two sides. This is what is happening now, and this is the very corruption of the democratic spirit. Okay, for just... I was actually going to say, I, I, I heard throughout some of the re- recent comments, the beginnings of applause, and then you backed off. So go for it, like, <laughs> like the justice. I, I want to ask the other side, the, 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 the degree to which their argument uh, is, is gaining traction. I want to know if it concerns you. In this month in London, John le Carré, the well-known novelist, espionage novelist, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, Spy Who Came In From The Cold, said this. I think of all of the things that were happening across Europe in the 1930s, in Spain, and obviously in Germany. To me, these are absolutely comparable signs of the rise of fascism, and it's contagious, it's infectious. Fascism is up and running in Poland and Hungary. He's, He's a well-known voice with a big megaphone saying that this stuff is happening now across Europe, that it's for real, as your opponent said, it's not abstract. What's your reaction to the fact that this idea is gaining traction? Does it, does, is it that in itself a threat to confidence in democracy? My reaction to that is that John Le Carré's very moving interview is one of the antibodies that is being activated to help us see clearly the nature of challenges and consistent with our values and in our political institutions to address those problems. I, I, I agree with Bernard Henri that we are in a tumultuous time. There's a lot that's changing very fast um, in all of our societies, and that's enervating. It's creating a sense of anxiety for people about their... Uh, longevity of their jobs, about the stability of the social order that they have known, about the way things have worked. Um, and it's, it is, however, possible to overanalyze the moment and think that it's uh, going to be a permanent feature as opposed yeah. to being able to solve those problems. And I want to I bring back to you, Asha, that, that Corey kind of dismissed your concern about the, the shift in millennial attitudes earlier as almost, almost not quite saying, well, kids are kids kind of thing. Not so much that they have a rational reason for thinking that, but that they, they're taking for granted what they know. They don't know how bad it can be. 
So, so she said that, that what she's not seeing is a sincere grasp for an anti-democratic uh, future, but that they kind of don't get it. I, I wanted, since that's so much the crux of your argument and your work, I'd like you to respond to that. And then after that, I'd like to start going to questions from the audience. I, I think that's really important. Look, I don't think that the people who say, I, I, I would be fine with army rule, would enjoy waking up under the rule of a colonel tomorrow. I certainly don't think they would. I don't think the people who say, I want a strongman leader who doesn't have to bother with parliament or elections, would enjoy living under a strongman leader. I don't think so for a moment. But the fact that they're saying, ah, democracy, you know what, that's not really so important. Who cares about it? I don't care about politics. Let them do whatever they want. The fact that they're saying, how bad could things get? You know what, if someone like Trump gets elected, ah, we'll get through it. Let's not worry about it. That concerns me a lot. Because you've seen over and over in different parts of the world, from the Bolshevik Revolution to the current government of Poland, that it doesn't take great support of a majority of a population to change the system of politics you live in. It takes a determined and well-organized minority who thinks that their views are more important than anything else and they're just going to go for it. And at that point, if a majority of people stands up to them... At that point, if the majority of people stands up to them, we can keep them back. We can save our democracy. We're not doomed. I'm not saying we're doomed. But if we're saying we're going to be fine, we've always been fine, of course we're going to be fine once again, then we might actually wake up under the rule of the Colonels tomorrow. Let's go to some audience questions, please. And the way it will work, if you raise your hand, I'll call on you. A microphone will be brought to you. You need to wait for the microphone. We'd appreciate it if you could stand up and tell us your name and, again, uh, don't debate with the debaters, but make a statement. Sir, right there. Um, the mic's right there. So if you can stand up, tell us your name. and um, you can, First name is fine, by the way. Great. I don't want to give away my identity. Yeah. Um, my name is Trevor. Uh, Do, we, his- Do you think we believe that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a history educator, and so because of that, I actually want to speak to a comment that you had made where it's sort of we can't overanalyze... You, you who, again, for the... Uh- uh, Corey, I apologize. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to Corey's point there, where we can't overanalyze the present moment, and... Um, while I know that the Holocaust is obviously a tough issue, I think I'm, I'm sort of surprised by how much we've avoided the story of Germany in the examples here. And so I actually want... Uh, my question is, Adolf Hitler was democratically elected in 1932 in an overwhelming majority, and in less than a decade, he turned what was a democracy into very much the antithesis of that. And so to what extent do you, do you think, I guess, the side would be, uh, Corey, to you and your side, um, how is that so fundamentally different than what we're seeing happen in the United States today? Because I would question... I think okay, that's where no, my you, skepticism you, you, for, that was, for resilience That was a perfectly nailed question, except for the last okay. sentence where, <laughs> where, you, where you said that's my question. But that was really good. That was a really, really well-phrased question. I want to take it to this side. It is a wonderful question. I think a really important one. Uh, I think there are a couple of differences. Um, the first is that we weren't in... Germany in 1938 having the kinds of conversations we are having here right now, right? This is what democracy does well. It worries, it airs arguments, it thinks about moderate corrections. It So presidential term limits are one great reason, right? It's a canary in a coal mine if a president stays longer than four years without being reelected. One of the reasons I am not as worried as our colleagues on the other side of the line are is not because I think everything always turns out right. Um, It's because you have canaries in the coal mine along the way that give you the ability to respond to them. 
And I think society is reasonably good at responding to it. And the more institutionalized a democracy is, the president's got to get reelected. Uh, the courts get a view on everything President Trump does. Uh, and he is abiding by those limits. The time I was most worried was when President Candidate Trump said that he, you know, wasn't sure what he was going to think about the outcome of the election. That kind of corrosive undercutting of the norms and behaviors that make our practices meaningful is worrisome. And um, I, I think our colleagues on the other side of the line ought to be hitting that one harder. <laughs> Bernard, to respond? Of course, we cannot compare the, the situations, and uh, the time of Hitler in Germany was absolutely incomparable to anything. And Donald Trump uh, is far from being comparable to that. But what I want to stress is that the real dissentiment we have, I don't believe that democracy is a natural state of the human being. Democracy is difficult. Democracy is fragile. People sometimes don't desire democracy. They prefer something else. They prefer nationalism. They prefer national pride. They prefer uh, sometimes war. Democracy is not the most desirable uh, uh, good, political good in the world. And this is what history has proved very often in the past. Democracy, because you, you reason as if there was a sort of natural regulation between uh, democracy and its opposite, and that at the end of the day it finishes well. Look at the Eastern Europe, Hungary and Poland. Very interesting. 30 years ago, we were all convinced that they were joining the circle of democracies with joy and enthusiasm, which was true. But after a few years, after a few decades, it proved to be not so true. And there is a sort of illiberal democracy, a sort of democrature, like a dictature, in these countries, which is a very special form of democracy. The smell of democracy, the allure of democracy, the institution of democracy, but no longer the spirit of democracy. And you cannot exclude that, that you can have the body of democracy without the soul so, and the spirit of let, democracy. So, Clive Cook, like so, well, I, I, if you I can take this part of the question, I mean, uh, your, your opponent, Bernard, is saying really that democracy is not the natural equilibrium state, that it's not everybody's cup of tea, it's got to be built, it's fragile, but if you build it and walk away, it's not going to keep going, it could fall apart. And, and I think you, your guys, you're, you're saying it sort of is the natural, it's the no, default No, no, not for a minute, I'm not no? saying okay. the natural state. But I think you, you do put your finger on the thing that we disagree about. I think so many of the things we're discussing, um, the differences are rhetorical more than substantive, except in this one crucial respect. I think you both do feel that democracy, Western democracy, democracy in the US, democracy in Western Europe, is brittle is fragile. And I don't think that. I think that democracy in the US and in Western Europe is robust and can handle and is handling a great deal of stress. And I just want to come back, if I may, very quickly and, and underline this point about the strains that our economies have been under. There is an interesting comparison with the 1930s. We've just been through a crash that was as bad as the Great Recession. This was um, 
that, that was as bad as the Great Depression. And this happened on the watch of supposedly sophisticated, technically adept governments that knew what they were doing, that understood finance, that un- all this stuff had been dealt with, but we had a crash, like the Great Depression, right? And it is not surprising that people are thrown by that, that people have, as I was saying before, legitimate grievances about that. And I think the, that protest deserves to be heard. It doesn't okay. threaten the system. Let me uh, take that The to system's the... fine. I, I want to let Yasha respond, and then right after that, I'd like to go to another question. I think we've put our finger on where the heart of our disagreement is. I agree with you that this is where the heart of our disagreement is. So how worried should we be? How much comfort should we take from the long democratic history in the United States? Unlike in Germany in the 30s here, we go back a very long time in our history. Well, I think that in order to conclude easily from the past to the future we have to assume that the sort of scope conditions, all of the conditions around what is happening now are the same. But all through the history of democratic stability in the United States, we have had a rapid improvement in living standards from one generation to the next. So people could say, do I love politicians? Do I trust them completely? No. But you know what? I'm doing a lot better than my dad was. My kid is not going to do better than me. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. And now they're starting to say, you know what? I've worked hard all my life. I'm not doing better than my parents were. My kids are probably going to do worse than me. Let's throw some shit against the wall and see what sticks. You know, NPR, NPR is going to have such a problem <laughs> with this. With this. <laughs> oh, NPR, NPR. Over the, the history of democratic stability, a democracy has been the most powerful country in the world. First, your great country, Great Britain, and now my great country, the United States. And it is not clear that it's going to continue being the case over the next 20 or 40 or 60 years as authoritarian powers are rising. So we can't simply assume that the past is a guarantee of future results as an Upper West Side audience might recognize about finance. Just one last point. You say, uh, Corey, that you were very worried before the election in 2016 because Donald Trump said he might not accept the outcome of the election. I agree. That was the moment I was most worried And we were spared having to find out what he would have done if he had lost, because sadly he won. Well, I'll tell you what. We have another election coming up. So what's going to happen in 2020 if, as I hope to God, we defeat him at the polls? Is he going to say, oh, yes, I lost fair and square. Please, candidate who won, I hand over to you? Or is he going to rouse up his own people to rebel against the election? That's something I'm worried about. The 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 question is what happens if he does do that. Right. What happens if he does say that thing? I'd rather not find and out. And I am very confident. I, I, I'm, I'm actually looking for uh, some women to join the conversation since we're outnumbered on the stage here. And I'm, thank you. And if you could stand up, please, and tell us your name. Um, I'm Malaika. And would you say that um, anyone who decides to participate in this vote after the debate should consider voting against the resolution? Because... Sort of the, like, there's a hint of irony if you vote for the resolution and you actually participate in this oh. vote. <laughs> That's a very clever question, but I'm going to take it as, I'm going to take it as more of a, a clever observation. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone? Else? Down front here. And the microphone's coming down from your left-hand side. <laughs> My name is Bernadette. 
I'm hearing a lot about this antidote and this protection of democracy and institutions that sort of happens naturally, but I hear it in the context of history and not in the context of the future. When we have our government gerrymandering districts so that we cannot have a vote that is fair, when we have a government that is stacking the Supreme Court makes corporations people, and we can add you know, 10 more examples to this, it's hard to understand how we really have an antidote anymore okay. to this. I'm going to t- turn that into a question and say, how do we have an antidote to this anymore, given that list of apparent compromises of the, of the fair and democratic process? Well, I'll give the example Dr. of my native state of California. Um, we have taken away from the uh, state Senate the ability to set our electoral districts. It's done by a bipartisan commission now, right? Democracy actually has the ability to do that. Um, we, we have the capacity to make these changes, and we just need to mobilize ourselves and do them. Right down in front? You have those tools. Uh, second row, I'm sorry. Yes, And if you could stand up, please. Yes, my name is Helena, and my question is to you. To the side against the argument. Yes. We have this wonderful constitution here. We have the rule of law. We have this very strong institution, as you say, definitely much stronger than, let's say, in Poland and Hungary, and this is the reason that we still have a democracy. But then you said the problem is... and. You also said... Can can you zero in on on your question for me? Thanks. Uh, Why we are not able to produce with this fantastic system good politicians, (laughs) (laughs) which would make sure that our democracy will survive. I'm going going to, again, that's a whole other debate. So I'm going to move on to another question. Sir, right in the middle there. And if you stand up, a microphone will be brought, I think, best from this side. We're going to have that debate eventually, I'm sure. Uh, For the side against the motion, my name's Ben. Um, It's an effective argument, I think, that the institutions uh, are responding. My question is, if you had someone uh, more effective and more uh, focused, perhaps, on corrupting those institutions, who didn't go for a Neil Gorsuch, but went for a good friend... Uh, how effective could those institutions be with a focused leader who intended oh. to remain? Interesting question. I want, do you want to take that, Clive? Or, or, and yeah, and I'm going to let the other side respond on this one because we haven't heard from them in a while. But you guys well, go you, first because the question is to you. You go ahead, Clive. I, I think, you know, you're right. It is something of a consolation that Trump is so clueless. You know, that if he, if he were more effective, I mean, think of the travel ban. If he were, that, that failed in the first instance because it was so incompetently drafted. He would be more of a worry if he knew what he was doing. That's true. And I don't deny that um, bad politicians get elected. Actually, I would like to come back to link it to, to what you were saying before. Why don't we get better politicians? The whole point of democracy is that it is robust in the face of bad politicians. There is something about the political process that projects certain kinds of people forward. I mean, I think you have a disproportionate share of seriously flawed individuals running for office. And the beauty of democracy is that it keeps them contained. Uh, I think this is really the larger point. 
And I do, if I may say one other point, I, I do hear this sentiment coming from the audience and, from, and certainly from the other side, that the, our situation is fragile, our situation is brittle, we're very concerned. I have to confess, I wonder about the sincerity. I have to worry about the sincerity of these statements. I mean, I, I work in journalism, and I'm surrounded by people who write about you know, the imminent collapse of our democratic system and the, the threat that Trump poses, that he is a fascist dictator, one step removed from that. Why aren't these people more frightened of being thrown in jail? Why are we a little more worried than we actually are? And maybe afterwards, if there are people out there who really do think that this democracy is doomed within the foreseeable future, let's say within my lifetime, you might be interested in having a little wager with me. I want to I throw in something from the news to, to this side, um, um, the, what, what's happened in uh, Catalonia. Um, Catalonia, a, pro- a province of, um, of Spain that is seeking, where there has long been for several decades a powerful impulse for separation uh, from Spain. And this past weekend, its regional government tried to stage a referendum to vote on secession. And the central government came in and crushed the vote literally crushed the vote, sending in police with batons to take away ballot boxes and beat up people who were trying to line up to vote. Yasha, where, where does that fit into this argument, that, that whole episode? Uh, let me answer the question. I just want to very quickly speak to, to Clive, because you know, I come from a country, uh, Germany, which isn't renowned for its sense of humor. And so when they laugh once a year at an event called Carnival... Um, <laughs> The way it works is that somebody makes joke, and after every joke, there's a band that goes, ta-da! <laughs> now, you seem to imagine that the threat to democracy will come in as unrefined and blatant a form as the Cologne Carnival, where when democracy is under threat, there's a sort of band striking up the threat, and we know exactly what the nature of the threat is. That's not how it works. That might have been how it worked in Berlin in 1933, but it's not how it's worked in Poland or Hungary or Venezuela or a whole number of but other countries. Are you saying... Now, I'm, I'm afraid I'm going to have to cut you off because I have to answer a question about Catalonia. Um, <laughs> I... Look, if somebody had told me, and I believe you, a year ago, that we would have close to a 1,000 seriously injured people in the streets of Barcelona by the police of Spain, I would have thought you were insane. I would have thought... Barcelona is one of the richest, most affluent, and by the way, most beautiful cities in Europe, in the whole world. It's part of a deeply democratic country. What are you talking about? And yet, this past Sunday, we've seen those clashes in the street. We've seen deep political responsibility on the part of the Catalan government, which pressed through a referendum with a minority of public support in a legally highly dubious way, voting through the law for the referendum when the opposition was outside of a parliament hall. And then we've seen an even more irresponsible central Spanish state saying, we're going to quash them with everything we've got. Instead of saying, let's have them, let them have a vote and ignore it, they came in and beat their citizens up. If that can happen in Barcelona today, I don't see a reason why we should be so complacent about our inability of things devolving in this deeply divided atmosphere here. Sorry, Shaki, to respond I, to that? I really do want to... All right. I, do, you want to yield, do you want to yield to Clive? Or, or go ahead. So I agree with Yasha that it'll happen with a whimper, not a bang, 
right? Because journalists and institutional restraints and uh, my angry mother will prevent the the carnival scenario. Um, but I also think you overestimate uh, the extent to which the Spanish, Polish, and Hungarian cases, worrisome as they are, are generalizable. What it looks to me, uh, when I look at those cases, what I see are countries that had been under, in the case of Poland and Spain, under foreign occupation for two generations, Soviet occupation, Soviet occupation, and Soviet influence, control, determining their political system. Not Spain, I said Poland and Hungary. And in Spain, under a fascist government, also undemocratic, until what, the late 1970s, early 1980s? What you get when countries are in transition to democracy, it's really hard. A lot of them fail. Um, The fact that Poland, Hungary, and Spain are struggling to transition, and perhaps their EU membership made that harder, because where, if they had gone from Soviet domination to independence, they would have perhaps had more space for airing of nationalism in ways that wasn't anti-EU and anti-democratic. I think those cases are really important, really dangerous, but also important to understand with specificity and might not be the best examples for the end of democracy in Britain or the United States. Bernard, are they outlier cases or are are they typical? Spain and Barcelona, Spain and Catalonia is a good example of um, the way in which democracy is misunderstood. Uh, it, they were wrong on both sides. Yes, Spanish side, because you cannot repress a vote with uh, sticks. That is clear. And this image of violence will be like a, a shame on the Spanish government for long. But Catalonia government was wrong also by reducing the desire of democracy to the only question of who governs, how do we share the power, and so on. They should better deal with the question of uh, Islamism in Catalonia, with the way in which they, they explained before the terrorist attack in Barcelona, the way in which they dealt with this uh, um, uh, story of uh, jihadism, Salafism, and so on. So there is a lack of democratic spirit in Barcelona and in Spain, which was compensated by this fight uh, for control of power. I want to go back to the question which was raised by the lady here. This question of why so bad politicians is a crucial question. Because for all Democrats, since the beginning of democracy, democracy has been a fabric of good politics. One of the signs of a sane democracy, of the real of a real democracy, is the ability to produce some good politics. Since the Greeks, when they produce Pericles, to the first to the beginning of the democracy in Europe, Machiavel, who says that the proof of democracy is the capacity to invent a political art. Machiavel said that art, uh, poli- uh, uh, policy in the future democracy is an art. That is, w- when he spoke about virtue, he meant virtuosity, like a pianist. For him, 
politics were like artists. They had, to, they had to have the virtuosity, the skill, the talent of an artist. Frankly, who is the artist of politics today in Europe or in America? Where are they? We are reduced to qualify Mr. Putin as a sort of artist in strategy, a great chess player, you know that? Which is an insult to chess play. So <laughs> this, fact, But, yeah. this fact that the so-called <laughs> democracy I, I, are unable to produce artists of, politi of policy is one of the signs that our motion is a good one. That democracy <laughs> I, I, is I, 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 saw, I saw, Clive, you were uh, really I, thinking I, that weren't true and digesting. So. I mean, It is an interesting theory of democracy that the, the purpose of democracy is to discover, you know, the Mozarts of politics who are Absolutely. out there. It is not. <laughs> At least a sign. It, it is not. Maybe Pol not the purpose of a sign. Politics is about ordinary, flawed individuals, and the purpose of democracy is to put them in a situation of competition and rivalry where they're held accountable to the people. That's what politics is for. Okay. But the people... Of course, but the accountability works on two sides in democracy. You, the people has to be accountable also for his choices. If the people is sovereign, democracy is the sovereignty of people. Every sovereign should be accountable. The people is king. Okay, all kings have to be accountable. And when the people makes a bad choice, a choice which is opposite to its interest, he is accountable also for his choices. This is the true democracy. I want to take uh, this gentleman. You're wearing an <laughs> orange shirt. I can't quite see the color. No, no. Um, uh, yeah. There you go. Hi there. <laughs> my name's Eric. Uh, I guess my question to the proposition would be, would it be more accurate to call this murder than suicide, given that the threat to democracy seems to come overwhelmingly from the right? <laughs> I'm, I'm, considering, I'm considering whether we want to go down that road right now. <laughs> I, again, I, I think I'm, I'm going to pass because it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very fascinating rabbit hole. Um, but I think it might be one and might take us away. So, so thanks for the question. But there's a gentleman right behind you who is uh, also waiting. Thank you. Uh, my name is Patrick. So, Carrie uh, and Clive, you guys have argued that democracy has these antibodies and it's structurally designed to defend itself from kind of the present circumstances. But I think if you look at the American Constitution in particular, it was designed when the federal government was minuscule. Currently, the federal government is three million employees. There's various government agencies. Um, and if you look at what Donald Trump is doing, right, he's uh, completely redesigning the EPA, or by not doing anything, he's letting Scott Pruitt do that. He's using his can, can, regulatory... Rather than giving a, a lot of examples, can you zero... We can, yep. can take that one and... So where are the check in, checks and balance in the modern government, either in America or in the European Union, against the regulations that have... And the regulation government that has evolved from democracy? Yes, that's a fantastic question. And the example that you gave... Uh, you only got to give one, I know. But it was an example of the administrative state, Right. Elections have consequences. Presidents have the ability to change regulation unless Congress prevents it or unless the courts determine that it is unconstitutional. 
So that you get changes to the policies and practices of the EPA is not surprising. That's what elections produce. Um, and the ability to make those changes is actually um, proof that the system is working. What I thought you were going to... I thought you were going to go slightly different direction, which is that the great genius of those few dozen guys who had the big debate about the nature and structure of the American government is that we have a government designed by people who are afraid of concentrations of power, right? You can't get anything big done in America without consensus. That's on purpose. And that is actually our greatest protection. I mean, I agree with Clive's point that President Trump's malevolence is being outpaced by his incompetence. But there's also, uh, there's also the very serious point that our government's designed to have to negotiate everybody into an agreement. And governments on both political sides uh, for the last several administrations haven't done nearly a good enough job of building a broad basis of support. That's why you see so much seesawing. I want to remind you that we are in the question... Oh, Rebecca. I want to remind you that we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide. Yasha, do you want to respond to what you just heard? Yeah. Um... <laughs> I'm trying to remember the exact... So, look, I think that's basically right, but there's a real problem here that... Checks and balances work as long as all parts of a government actually have a common purpose in mind. When you read the founding fathers, when you read the Federalist Papers, they talk a lot about overcoming factionalism, about the common or the public good, people working together for that. They were really worried about the country being split into two big factions. They didn't think of political parties, but they would recognize the Democrats and Republicans precisely as two big factions of a kind that they were scared of. And the problem with the checks and balances is that when you have so many veto points that nothing can get done because there's this deep spirit of animosity, of partisanship between both sides of the aisle, then any time somebody has a little bit of power, they use it to the max. They start to abuse the institutional norms because now we've got the presidency and we've got to do everything we can. And it goes into the cycle where precisely the blockage of politics, which makes it impossible to deal with the real problems that we've been talking about, like the stagnation of living standards for ordinary people, then produces a counter-reaction where people say, well, now I'm in government, I'm going to do whatever we want. And that, political scientists show, is exactly what has happened historically in Latin America which had a very similar presidential system, many of those countries, to the United States. And you ended up in these situations of political blockage when nothing could happen. And eventually a strongman leader came about and said, you know what, I'm going to solve all of this. Just give all of the power to me. I'm going to run roughshod over institutions. I'm going to solve everything. And you know what you call that person? You call him a dictator. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is Western democracy is threatening suicide. And now we move on to round three. Round three are closing statements by each debater in turn. They will once again stand up and go to the space on the side. These uh, closing statements will be two minutes each, 
And immediately after that, we'll have you vote a second time, and very quickly we will be able to announce our winner. The motion is Western democracy is threatening suicide. Here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Yasha Munk, senior fellow at New America and lecturer at Harvard University. Once upon a time, there was a chicken on a farm. And it was very happy. And all of the other animals on the farm kept warning it and saying, be careful, the farmer is only nice to you now, but one day he'll come and kill you and slaughter you. And the chicken said, what are you talking about? Every day he comes and feeds me, every day he says some nice things about me. Why would things suddenly be so different? This is a story by Bertrand Russell, and he concludes that um, uh, uh, indeed the farmer did come and wrung the neck of a chicken and more sophisticated views as to the nature of history would have been to the chicken's benefit. <laughs> I'm telling you this story because there are some things that were driving the farmer's actions. There are scope conditions to how he acted. As long as the chicken was thin enough, he let it live. Once it was fat enough of the market, he slaughtered it. We cannot conclude from history to the future because some things are different now. We have some deep problems And our political societies are failing to address those. And so we can't assume that just because democracy was stable in the past, it's going to be stable in the future. Ancient Athens lived for 200 years. The Roman Republic lived for 500 years. The Republic of Venice ruled serenely over the beautiful lagoon for over a thousand years. If people in the later stages of those polities had said, Perhaps it's going to die in the next 50 years. Perhaps the system will collapse. People would have said, you're crazy. What are you talking about? And yet, eventually, they did. My point is not that democracy is doomed. It is not. We can fight for our democracies. We can save our democracies. But the first step towards that is not to make the mistake the chicken made, not to make the mistake that the Athenians and the Romans and the Venetians did at some point in the history and recognize that our political system is now under threat, and that will take all of us fighting and working together in order to save it. And that's why I think it's truly important for you to vote for our side of the debate. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Ramon. The motion again, Western democracy is threatening suicide. Here making his closing statement against the motion, Clive Crook, columnist for Bloomberg View. Well, when I... Uh when I, told, when I told people I was speaking in this debate tonight and opposing this motion, a common reaction was, oh, so you're taking the optimistic view. Good luck with that. <laughs> I, actually, I'm not a great optimist. I don't see Trump as a fascist dictator, but I'm under no illusions about the damage he can do in areas where the law grants him authority. I'm pretty gloomy about Brexit as well. Although I think Brexit on the merits is a closer call, I'm worried about what's going to happen to the UK economy. I think it's going to be very difficult. It's pretty much a slow-motion train wreck. So don't call me an optimist. But here's the thing. It's a point of pride for me to meet people who disagree with me about things I care about. So I actually know a lot of Trump supporters and count many among my friends. I know a lot of Brexit supporters too, Some of those are family. I don't deny these populist movements do attract and energize a fringe of outright anti-democrats and shameless bigots. 
But in my experience, they're a small minority. One thing I can say with certainty that all the people I've talked to about these subjects agree on, and I think the vast majority of people on all sides of these issues also agree about this. Our politicians work for us, not the other way around. When we judge them to have failed, we kick them out, and no one is above the law. So, fellow pessimists, let's not bring intelligent pessimism into disrepute. Western democracy will prevail. I ask you to vote against the motion. Thank you, Clive Cook. And that motion again, Western democracy is threatening suicide. And here making his closing statement in support of the motion, Bernard-Henri Lévy, philosopher and author of The Genius of Judaism. Bernard-Henri Lévy. I'm not a pessimist uh, either, but I just observed um, that in Europe, we thought, for example, that Poland, Hungary, and so on were the beating heart of Europe, and we hoped in that. They are turning in authoritarian regimes. Germany, we did think since recently that Germany was uh, vaccinated by its own past, by its guiltiness, against the return of the ghost. A few weeks ago, we had the proof of the opposite. France, fatherland of human rights, we were at the edge a few months ago to have populists of the right and populists of the left waging the last competition. And in America, you have Donald Trump. And in England, in UK, I'm sorry, you said uh, at the beginning of our conversation that the Brexit vote was a protest against the lack of power on the institution of Europe. It is not true. It was most, mostly a protest against uh, migrants being at home and so on. It was more, than, more this than protest against the European Union and, and all the system which goes with it. What I want to say is that the best theorician of American democracy was a Frenchman. Alexis de Tocqueville, I'm sorry for this, but it's a fact. And he said that democracy was three things. Vote, of course, number one. But number two, the rule of law. And number three, a certain form of civilization. Tocqueville said that it was a form of freedom of speech, a way of behaving with the other, a way of having a free debate, and that this, a way also of being, if you want, out of the grasp of power. And this democratic civilization is what shows today some signs of corruption everywhere in the Western world. Thank you. Thank you, Bernard Lévy. One more time, our motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide. And here to make her closing statement against the motion, Corey Shaki, Distinguished Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. So my favorite commentator, thank you, my favorite commentator on American culture is not Alexis de Tocqueville, magnificent as he is, but a British historian from the 1920s, Bertha Ann Reuter, who described the United States as a country of people too extreme in religion and politics to live in peace anywhere else, right? We are not newly a society with lots of friction. We are not newly a society 
that has economic problems, that, that is uncivil in much of its discourse, <laughs> that has a lot of serious social problems that we at times address inadequately or we fail to live up to our values. Those aren't new things about our country. My favorite uh, article ever written about America in the world is by the journalist James Fallows. And I can't remember the actual title, but his argument is that the reason the United States is successful in the world is because we always think we're failing, right? It's about the role of the Jeremiah. Do you remember Jeremiah from, uh, the, new, from the Bible? Um, he always thinks he's failing. He always thinks humans are failing God, and he's right. The United States always thinks it's bad at stuff, right? In the 1970s, the Japanese economy was overtaking us, and now the rise of China is going to be the end of American dominance. We tend to give our opponents all of the advantages of what we struggle so mightily to get right, and there are many things we get right. One of those things is building institutions and building civil society as a counterbalance to the power of government, the distribution of power that we have in Western liberal societies is our great saving grace and is much more robust than our adversaries this evening give it credit for. I hope you will vote with me on that. Thank you, Karitaki. And that concludes our closing statements. And now it's time to learn which side you believe has argued the best. I want to ask you again to go to your phones and again return to that address that you see on the screen. It's also on the back of your program, iq2us.org forward slash vote. You'll get the prompts sent to you to vote yes, no, or undecided. And while you're doing that, um, I just want to say a couple of things. One is that I said at the beginning of the evening, our goal is to raise the level of public discourse and to, to be able to have debate and conversation and argumentation, frankly, argumentation in a civil and respectful and entertaining and engaging and informative way, which um, turns out to be really hard because there's not a lot of it. But it did happen on this stage tonight. And for that, I congratulate these four debaters and the way they came to this. You, you were really terrific. And, Corey, I, I personally take inspiration from, from your, your telling us that if you're pretty sure that you're constantly failing, that that's a good thing. So, so I'm feeling better about that now. I, I, I also want to thank everybody who got up and asked a question, and that includes the people whose questions I didn't take. I know it takes a lot of guts to stand up and do that. Uh, I don't enjoy passing on questions, and some of them, in fact, are the ideas for really great debates that we can have down the future. So, can I add one personal note about the questions? Pardon me? Can I add a personal note about the question? Sure. It's to the lady who asked about why we can't have good politicians, uh, who happens to be my aunt, and I just want to tell her that... (laughs) And I just want to tell her that I'm very angry that she stole the show from all of us by asking the funniest question of the night. Um, I, I also want to point this out for those of you who are new to Intelligence Squared US. You've heard the regulars have heard me say this many times. 
Uh, we are a nonprofit organization. This is an act of philanthropy. I, told, I talked with you about our podcast. I talked with you about the fact that this debate will end up on uh, many, many NPR stations across the nation. It's also being used in schools uh, through our website. Um, we're, we, we really uh, are serious about trying to get the word out that this is a good, that there's wisdom in argument, that wisdom emerges from argument, and that that's a good thing. So... I also want to tell you that as a philanthropy, we depend on support from a lot of people, and that would include any of you who would be willing to go to your phones and send a little donation in by text. I personally would appreciate it because uh, our goal here is to grow this thing, to make it get bigger and bigger. At this point, we're up to the point where we can do about 17 or so of these debates a year, but we need support for that. Um, if you go to your phone, um, you can, there are two ways. Just go to our website, iq2us.org, and that's doable right there. But you can do a text uh, donation. If you text the word debate, debate to the number 797979, you'll get a link to debate online. And since you've all got your phones out now anyway, I'm sure that that's the reason that you're doing it. We really would appreciate it. We're going to be back here uh, at this theater, the Kaufman, on October 24th. That's a Tuesday night. The motion then will be pay college athletes. Debating for the motion will be Joe Nocera. He is the author of a book called Indentured, the inside story of the rebellion against the NCAA. His partner will be economist Andy Schwartz. We will make sure that they rehearse knowing who their partners are. (laughs) Debating against sports columnist Christine Brennan and former NBA player Len Elmore will be arguing against. Later on this season, again here at the Kaufman, we're going to be debating uh, this Conservative feminism is an oxymoron. And in December, we'll be debating the motion, liberals are morally superior. Yeah, I see a lot of people going, what, there's a debate there? If you can't, if you can't, if you can't get to these debates in person, and we love it when you're here in person, it brings great energy, um, Uh, You can visit our website, as I said before. Uh, You can vote on the debates there. You can listen to our podcast and a lot more. Membership is free, so set up an account uh, there, and you can can actually kind of play the the way we've gamified it. You can build an IQ2 score, and you can watch all of our debates on demand on Roku and Apple TV. So um, I now have the results have come in. I want to remind you, you have voted twice, once before you heard the arguments, and once again after you've heard the arguments. It's the team whose numbers have moved up the most in percentage point terms that determine who our winner is. Let's look at the first vote. In the first vote on the motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide. 41% agreed, 31% were against, and 28% were undecided. Those are the first votes. Let's look at the second vote. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their result was 57%. They pulled up 16 percentage points. Okay, that's the number to beat. Let's look at the, other, the against side. Their first vote was 31%. Their second vote was 37%. They pulled up eight percentage points, which was not enough. It means the team arguing for the motion, Western democracy is threatening suicide, are our winners. Our congratulations to them. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and Intelligence Squared U.S., We'll see you next time. Um, You guys were a fantastic audience and brought great energy, so thank you, everybody.